0: And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients... Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited-edition ultra-low-net-carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McKrispie Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, my friends. We will be right back to the show. But I have a question for you. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. What's up, Unbroken Nation? Welcome to another episode of the Michael Unbroken Podcast. My goal and company is to give you the tools to help you understand your past, get out of the vortex, and become the hero of your own story. This podcast is sponsored by thinkunbroken.com. And you can check out my new book, Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for mental health care, but instead think of it more as a companion where we're here to support each other and to grow. Each episode of the Michael Unbroken podcast is less than 10 minutes, though sometimes that does not happen. So hang out with me. Stay tuned. If you have questions, if you want to have conversations with me or you have information you want to share, reach out to me directly on social media at Michael Unbroken, or you can email me at michael at thinkunbroken.com. Enjoy this episode, my friend, and until next time, be unbroken. <music> Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Michael Unbroken podcast. Today, I'm going to do something a little bit different than usual. As our new book, Think Unbroken, yes, our book, because this is something I created for us, Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma comes out today. So as you are listening to this, the book is now live. This book is exactly what I felt like I needed when I was going through my process and journey of healing. And so I wrote it and I created it. And I spent the last year dissecting and understanding and building and doing all the things that I could think of to put into this book that would help create this idea of change. This book is not gonna change your life, guys. I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you, only you can do that. No book you will ever read will change your life. But what this book will do, something that most books do not, is give you the tools. This is a guide. It is, in essence, a workbook. It is something that I created in the style in which I learn, which is read, do, read, do. And so that's really what this book is about. People have been asking me, am I going to do an audiobook version of Think Unbroken? The long answer is yes. The short answer is not yet. And the reason not yet is because I am self-publishing. This is coming through Think Unbroken. And because of that, I don't really have the funds yet to hire an audio engineer to do the entire process because recording a podcast is one thing. Recording an audio book is a whole other thing. And there are so many other different moving pieces to it um, that I'm not quite yet in that place where I feel like I could comfortably do it. So my goal is in 2020 to sell enough copies of this book that I can hire an audio engineer and go and have this professionally recorded. Now, that said, I wanted to do something special today. I want to do something a little bit different and actually read the preface to you. The preface has been available online for a while um, for reading purposes. You know, if you wanted to download that, you can. And if you want to, you can read it in Think Unbroken. So you can go to thinkunbroken.com paperback. It's also on Amazon. It's also on Kindle. It's also everywhere. And it is officially in the Library of Congress. So um, that's super exciting. Now, that said, um, I'm going to read chapter one. That's going to be this episode of the podcast. I'm going to tell you right now that if you happen to be listening this with kids around, uh, you probably don't want to. Um, it's kind of dark because it's the baseline of my existence. When I wrote this book, I wanted to be very cautious in not making this book about me. However, I think the only way that it made sense to create something that was going to be palatable for people who are like me, who are survivors of intense childhood trauma or any level of childhood trauma, I needed to share a bit of my story. And so only the very first, like call it 3% of the book is about me. And this thing comes in at about 250 pages um, and only like the first 12 are about me. Okay, And that's just because high level, I thought it was really important to share my story so that you can relate, so that we come in this on even background, knowing that I'm not a snake oil salesman. This isn't something I'm just making up. This is real. And so because of that, I'm going to share it with you. The book is broken down into five parts, so we're just going to start part one. I'm going to read this, too. I hope that you'll stick with me. Look, guys, I'm going to keep it real. There's going to be some darkness, but there's also going to be some light. Um, I've never read this aloud in this format before, so I'm going to try to read it how I think it should be read. And I hope that you'll tag along. This is actually kind of super fun. I'm really excited about this. And if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm going to have the book like in my face, so I'm sorry if you can't see me. If you're listening to this to on podcast, you will hear the pages turning because I'm literally holding the final proofed copy that I ran through most recently. Uh, so here we go. Part one, houses built atop volcanoes. A house that has a foundation built atop a volcano will eventually be consumed by its eruption. Michael Anthony. There is no doubt that the foundation of the childhood trauma survivor is that created of pain and suffering. The evolving baseline of abuse often catapults its victims into the dark abyss of the psyche and traps survivors within their own bodies and minds. The impact of trauma begins to manifest in youth and becomes the driving force and creation of a litany of physical, mental, and emotional catastrophes in adult years. My own experience exhibits the impact and consequences that traumatic events can have on a life. My foundation was built atop a volcano, and the liquid-hot magma almost consumed me. Preface Downhill, head-on, this crash is coming slowly, Move, Or watch the slow death of the way of life. There's a science to fear, it plagues my mind, and it keeps us right here. The Science of Fear the temper trap. Child abuse is war. It was in November of 2013 that I decided to change everything that was happening in my life. I was 150 pounds overweight, cheating on my girlfriend, sick with a bacterial infection from drinking too much, smoking almost two packs of cigarettes a day, and getting high from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep. I was thriving as a wedding photographer building an e-commerce clothing brand, and working a third job to cover the expenses of the second business. To say the least, I was a workaholic consumed with a million projects, which meant I didn't have to be alone with myself or my girlfriend. Photography led me down an incredible path, but required all of my energy. I was working with huge companies and getting recognized for my talent in multiple publications. The business part of my life was great. But my personal life was a disaster. In a word, my life was chaos. One evening, everything changed. I woke up and my lungs were on fire. My head was pounding. My body shaking. And I felt the most lost I had ever felt. Feelings of guilt and shame spun around in my head like a police siren after getting extremely fucking intoxicated and cheating on my partner again. The pain of knowing that I was sabotaging my life again left me feeling like a total loser, which in turn was sabotaging my life. I was in the vortex. The voice inside screamed, you are a fucking loser. Look at your life. You are a piece of shit. It was hard to argue with the voice in my head because it was telling the truth. It's impossible to lie to ourselves and sometimes self-talk is right. The vibration in my body screamed help and I didn't know if I was having a panic attack dying or both at age 28 it felt like i was on the precipice of my demise this wasn't the first time that i'd taken a can of gasoline doused my house and struck a match i was a regular pyromaniac when it came to burning down the things that i loved myself included self-destruction and numbness was more comfortable than filling the consequences of my actions or love or kindness That morning, as I was getting ready to head out to another wedding expo, I walked into the bathroom and did something that I had never done before. I went to the mirror and forced myself to look into my own eyes. To this day, I have no idea why I did that. My eyes were sunken, my skin jaundiced, my teeth yellowed, and the round, smushed face in front of me resembled that of someone else. That morning was the first time in my life that I've ever really looked at myself and I was so incredibly ashamed and embarrassed of the person that I saw looking back. I was a master of deception and crafting tales, hiding the truth from myself and orchestrating bullshit, but I couldn't hide the darkness inside that was manifesting on the outside. There was nowhere to hide from the shame and embarrassment of being 150 pounds overweight as I struggled to button the size 4XL shirt and wrap size 47 pants around my waist. There was nowhere to hide from the truth that I was drinking and smoking myself to death, that I was running from intimacy, vulnerability, compassion, and that I was terrified of my own potential. Trauma, by definition, is a deeply disturbing or distressing event, and I was forged in its fire. I was living and breathing real-life caricature of trauma. The person in that mirror was not the real me, and I knew it. My journey is not dissimilar to that of millions of people around the world. I grew up in chaos. My mother, Donna, was a drug addict and alcoholic. She cut my finger off when I was almost four. She claimed it was a bicycle accident, but my grandmother told me otherwise. I will never know the truth. She was a narcissist, a liar, a thief, and ultimately a victim of the same abuse that my brothers, my sister, and I suffered. She was cold, manipulative, callous, cruel, narcissistic, bipolar, manic-depressive, suicidal, and only out for herself. She always put herself before her children. She often walked around the house naked and high. It wasn't until I read The Truth by Nil Strauss that I came to understand our relationship was covertly incestuous due to her often sleeping nude next to me when my stepfather or other men were not around, crowning me the man of the house, rewarding me for being her big man, and often using me as an in-between for her relationships. I learned to become a master manipulator, liar, and thief from watching her coerce her way through life while weaving countless webs of deceit to get what she wanted from other people. I believe that it was her own abuse which led her down a path of self-destruction, and it rubbed off on me. Our home was just another example of intergenerational child abuse manifesting itself. Drugs weren't uncommon in my home. I had always seen my mother popping pills, and her weed and alcohol stashes were easy to find. Sometimes there would be more prescription bottles strewn across the floors of the house than food. My mother's addiction lay at the bottom of those little orange vials with white caps. She did have some medical use for them, but more often than not, it was her way of coping with the world. Sadly, she chose those bottles over the well-being of her children, And on more than one occasion, it was me sprinting to the phone to signal for help as she grasped for her life, overdosing again and again. When I was 16, I had enough of my mother putting drugs before me and using my brothers and me against each other. With the help of my grandmother, I filed a restraining order against her and my stepfather. The next year of my life would turn out to be the best of childhood. I excelled in sports, had straight A's, and met the first girl that actually liked me back. I can pinpoint the impact of the relationship with my mother and stepfather as a direct corresponding factor in my grades. Teachers often thought that I didn't care or had a learning disability, but the truth is that my brain and body were consumed in fear and toxic stress. When I was 18, I made a decision that I felt was the only choice I could make for self-preservation. I told my mother that she and I would never speak again. Earlier that night, I had to physically defend myself from her after she attacked me in my sleep. Until that night, I had never hit her, even in self-defense. But her drug-fueled attack was the last straw. I only saw her a couple of times after that night. From 18 until the day she died, I had almost no contact with her. Ultimately, those little, round, oval, and triangle-shaped pills would take her life. My father, Michael, who I am named after, abandoned me when I was barely two years old. When people ask me about him, I tell them that I have never met him, but that is not entirely true. The truth is that I did meet him around my fifth birthday. He picked up my brothers and me from the rundown apartment we lived in on the west side of Indianapolis with my mother and our mutt mixed breed dog, Wolfie. He took us to the shopping mall on the north side of Indy to buy his presents, or at least that is what we were told was going to happen. There were no presents, but we did have a slice of pizza in the food court. After asking to ride the penny horses, he beat us in front of onlookers who did nothing to stop him. I don't know what we did that was so wrong. I will never forget that day. That is my only memory of him, and to carry his name is a burden that I often feel. Part of me has always thought that I would change my name, and the other part of me wants to prove my strength despite him. My stepfather, Sebastian, was hyper-abusive and liked to torture me by flicking me in the head, calling me fat and worthless, and hitting me for asking questions. He once slammed me into the living room closet door when I confused the word Pisces for feces as I read to my baby brother. Let me read that again, guys. He once slammed me into the living room closet door when I confused the word Pisces for feces as I tried to read my baby brother's horoscope from the Indy Star Sunday paper. My youngest brother is his only biological son, and the only one that didn't suffer. My stepfather found joy in dragging my brothers and me out of our beds and beating us. He would scream, Keep crying, and I'll give you something to cry about. Eventually, I learned to stop crying and accept pain as a way of life. I used to think that my childhood officially ended the night he beat my brothers and me so hard that I passed out on the kitchen floor after putting wet dishes away in the cabinet. The punishment I endured for the simple mistakes of being a child were harsher than most people who commit rape and murder. I could handle the torment and bullying at school because I knew I got to go home. At school, I was an easy target. I smelled like piss, wore hand-me-downs, and had the temperament of a toddler. The abuse and torment I experienced at home would shape the next two decades of my life. The only solace I had were the nights that my stepfather was gone and working hundreds of miles away as an over-the-road truck driver. Hearing his car door close in the driveway announcing his arrival was always the most terrifying moment as a child. I never knew when he was going to be back from a trip. Well into my 20s, the sound of a door closing would send me sprinting to the window to look out. I knew that the time between that door closing and him getting into the house was enough to stuff a teddy bear into my underwear to take the brunt of the punishment that I was surely to receive. At six foot four and over two hundred pounds, he packed a punch, and I felt it more than I cared to remember. Between being locked in closets, having my head slammed into walls, beaten for mispronouncing words, and constantly walking on eggshells for fear of his wrath, I was in a constant state of fear. There were no days off, and the holidays were even worse. I'll never forget the Christmas that we got new bikes, which were taken away only days later. We were too stupid and retarded to deserve them. My nights were robbed of sleep, and my days were filled with vicious attacks. It was a never enough to be hit once or twice. The good beatings never seemed to end until I was on the ground in the fetal position, gasping for air. Today, as I stand six foot four and two hundred pounds. I know my strength, and I can't imagine a more cowardly act than hitting a child or making fun of them for wetting the bed. I wet the bed until my late teens because my nervous system was completely and utterly fucked up. I know that like my mother, his childhood must have been filled with torment after torment. On some of the summer days during school breaks, we would stay with his mother, Mary, who babysat my brothers and me along with her four foster children. The way she treated those children is on par with the worst horror movies I have ever seen. She treated her foster children worse than my brothers and I were treated by her son, my stepfather. They were starved, beaten, and embarrassed on a daily basis. Once, after hiding a corn muffin in her panties to eat later in the day, one of the foster girls was dragged to the garage by her hair, stripped naked, beaten, and forced to eat the muffin off the oil-soaked floor in front of every child in that house. This was so common that I wasn't shocked. I have encountered so many terrible and misguided people, but she was evil in ways that I didn't know a person could be. After being evicted, again, we moved into Mary's house. It was like living in hell. The walls, the smells, and the feeling of hearing the scream of those tortured foster children haunted me every night. It was a real-life haunted house, and for years I was forced to call it home. All of my experience have taught me that child abuse is not sporadic, and I would argue that abuse is a learned behavior repeated generationally time and again. I read somewhere recently that hurt people hurt people. It only makes sense to me that being a practitioner of abuse is embedded in the abused. I grew up in the Mormon church, and since we were often homeless or deeply impoverished, the church parishioners would take us into their homes or offer us tithes to cover electric and water bills. It was during this time that I was molested by one of the ward's mothers. When I shared this with my own mother, she told me that I wasn't allowed to say a word. A few years later, when I mentioned it again, she told me that it didn't happen and that I was a liar. I carried the shame of that experience for decades. I saw the worst parts of church. And witnessed other children being hurt and abused when my brothers and i would stay with them when my mother was gone on a binge and my stepfather out of town i would find myself staying with the different families from the brownsburg ward of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints over multiple years i stayed up let's try that again guys over multiple years i stayed with upwards of 30 different families and much like ours What happened behind closed doors was often hidden by Sunday smiles and pitch-ins. By the time I was 11, I had been stripped entirely of my childhood. Between the beatings, belittlement, molestation, bedwetting, shame, tattered clothes, foodless nights, bullying, and homelessness, I was ready to kill myself. Around this time, my baby brother went with his father, my stepfather, after he and my mother finally divorced. The second youngest of his boys went into the care of the state after threatening to to kill himself. My sister lived with her father and escaped most of these experiences. Our family was anything but healthy and functional, and it hurt to know that of all the dysfunctional families, we were the worst. When I was 12, my vehemently racist grandmother, Gladys, adopted my youngest brother and me. Racism was a part of daily life living with my grandmother. It was not uncommon for her to scream, spick, jap, nigger, coon, jew, beaner, and a litany of other diatribes out the car window or under her breath at the grocery store. It wasn't until my last few years of high school that the direction of her racism began to change, and began to directly impact my brothers and me. By the time I was a senior in high school, she would often say, I guess you want to go to prison like those nigger friends of yours, and... I didn't raise you to be another one of these black bums. This would be the downfall of our relationship and one of the major reasons that I have removed myself from her in the way that I had my mother. Looking back and knowing that a copy of Adolf Hitler's autobiography and manifesto, Mein Kampf, was in our living room, I shouldn't have been surprised by her racism. I will forever be thankful to my grandmother for taking me in. However, Being a biracial teen in a racist household in an almost all-black neighborhood led to a full-on identity crisis in high school that would take me another 10 years to sort out. High school was certainly no walk in the park. While it did well in sports, the dog-eat-dog prison-like environment at my school, one of the worst in America, drove me to stay intoxicated as often as possible. In fact, Northwest High School had such a deplorable graduation and pass rate that it was listed as a dropout factory in a study at Johns Hopkins. It has since been closed due to the budget deficits and declining enrollment. In high school, I was deep into using and selling drugs, breaking into houses and cars, committing robberies, skipping, getting into fights, and hurting people, along with honing my skills as a con artist. In essence, I was a full-on product of my environment. I started drinking daily before I graduated, and the sad truth is that a lot of us did. I was on a one-way path to being kicked out of school, but there were two teachers who, without question, impacted the direction of my life. Mr. Hollingsworth was the only man in my life that instilled any sense of belief in myself. He made me feel valued and believed in my talent on the wrestling mat and in school. He was the only person to ever recognize that something bad had happened to me, and the only person to tell me that I was going to do something important with my life. His support will never be lost on me, and I am forever grateful. My life seemed to be headed towards total collapse, but by sheer luck, I had another amazing teacher who taught me the most important lesson that I have ever learned. Mr. Brown was the kind of teacher who had seen everything, and I'm sure I was not the first or last kid to try to win him over in an effort of getting out of showing up. In the last semester of my senior year, he failed me for not showing up to class, and I was forced to attend summer school while my friends were beginning their first real season of freedom. I begged him to pass me. I literally cried and begged him. I punched the lockers and screamed, but he wasn't fazed. My world was ripped upside down as I had become the biggest loser in school. When my friends found out, they ostracized me. I was now the laughingstock of a school of laughingstocks. What they didn't know and what I hadn't yet realized is that trauma was guiding every action of my life. What Mr. Brown did was not only courageous, but to this day, the single most important thing that anyone has done for me. What he did was teach me that I can't get by in life on my charm and good looks. If I want something, I have to work for it. After not being able to get into the military because of my medical history, I spent the next couple of years getting fucked up, chasing girls, working in restaurants, and partying until 6 a.m. I had no regard for my own well-being or those around me and constantly put myself and others at risk as I rode the spiral of sex, drugs, and booze like I was Tommy Lee of Motley Crue. In full disclosure... Try that again. In full disclosure, Tommy Lee was my idol as a kid. I knew that I was destined for something outside of homelessness and abuse, but didn't know how to get there except through money and power. I made a decision that I would do whatever it took to legally make a six-figure income by the time I was 21. I assumed that the way out of poverty and the insanity of my youth was money, so I worked my ass off until ultimately finding success in corporate America at one of the largest insurance companies in the country. At 21 years old, I was making more money legally than anyone I knew. but the income only exacerbated the stirrings of darkness awaiting deep within me. Eventually, I would walk away from that six-figure lifestyle to chase my dream of becoming a professional photographer. Pursuing my dream of photography didn't change the fact that the demons were incic- that the demons were encircling me and would soon engulf my soul. On my 26th birthday, I put a gun in my mouth as my girlfriend pounded on the bathroom door, begging me not to kill myself. I will never forget the taste of the cold metal against my tongue. I pulled the trigger, but the pen didn't strike the bullet casing. A failure to fire. I had guns in my life since I was a child, and I will never understand why that round man malfunctioned. Two days later, I went to the firing range, and that same gun worked like new. Fast forward three years. My photography and e-commerce businesses were booming, but everything else around me was in shambles. My relationships were a total lie because I was addicted to sex, porn, and was surrounded by toxic people who encouraged me to continue down the path I was on instead of getting my shit together. Being young with money opens the world to best and worst possibilities, and I chose to swim in a pool filled with alcohol and drugs. I was drinking and getting stoned every day. I was addicted to feeling numb and I only cared about getting fucked up. I sought validation from every external source I could find. I was in the worst shape of my life, weighing in at over 340 pounds. In addition to being morbidly obese, I was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. I was depressed, anxious, having panic attacks, and suicidal thoughts. I felt like complete shit. I couldn't face the cold, hard fucking truth that I needed to stop making excuses and take my life back. After another drug and alcohol-fueled night, I woke up hating myself. I hated who I was and who I had become. As a child, I promised myself that I would be better than the people that brought me into the world. I had broken that promise to myself. I decided in a single moment that everything had to change. This was my mirror moment. This was seven years ago. There is a lot to be said about the impact of our past and the way that it shapes us into the people we are and will become but more often than not, it's a crutch and an excuse. I no longer seek validation for my existence through external sources. I have found a real and true love for myself. I'm no longer playing the victim. I've transformed my body and mind through hard work, dedication, persistence, the unwavering belief that I can do anything. One of the hardest truths that I had to admit to myself was that vicious and undeserved trauma happened to me again and again. I had to accept that I had survived some of the most toxic environments imaginable, and that I lost my way because I was so dissociated from the truth. They say the truth will set you free, and I agree with that to an extent. The part that they leave out is that you have to acknowledge and feel the truth if you want to be released from its grasps. Today, I educate people around the world on the effects of trauma and how to get out of the vortex, take their lives back, and become the person that they know they are. When I look back on that moment in the mirror, I am reminded of the promise I made myself, to stop making excuses. I would do anything to get healthy, including leaving everything behind to start over from scratch. It's not that I was running from who I was, I was running towards who I wanted to be. What I didn't know was that the road to recovery and healing would be more daunting and confusing than the actual trauma itself. Surprisingly, The process of discovering who I really am was more complicated than being the person that the world wanted me to be. The day everything changed, I acknowledged that I was responsible for creating the Michael I saw staring back at me. The Michael that stands in front of me today is the same, but with one huge difference. Today, I love myself. I love my strength, courage, personality, body, heart, and mind. I had to walk over the fiery hot coals and smoking ashes of the flames that once engulfed me. Because that was the only way I could create me. When I look in the mirror now, the welling police siren has turned into a powerful yet gentle whisper of a breeze that tells me, you are strong, you are capable, you are loved. It is through your story that others will find their light. It is through your power that change will happen. Go forward without fear because today could be the best day of your life. Trauma doesn't give a shit about where you live what color your skin is, or how much money you have, or your status in society. As many as 70% of adults may be survivors of trauma. My mission is to guide survivors of trauma by connecting them with the warriors that they genuinely are. The battle against trauma is one that must be faced together, and it's easier to do that with a team by your side. Society may have once labeled me as an outcast, a loser, a drunk, a stoner, a liar, a cheater, and a thief. And those labels were all true. However, the one label I have always rejected was being called broken. I never felt broken, but I longed for someone to show up and guide me through the healing process. They never came. I decided to write this book because it is what I needed when I started my journey. I hope that you will find it to be the same. I am here for you. We are in this together. We are not alone. We are the unbroken. Guys, thank you so much for coming on this journey with me and listening to the preface of this book. It's been a very long process kind of compiling all of the things that I've learned over the course of my lifetime and the tools that have helped me become the person that sits in front of you today. And I couldn't have done this alone. And there are so many people that I wish to thank. And I gave them acknowledgments in this book because it is community that will f- help us get through whatever is happening right now. Ultimately, the people around us will be the catalyst for health and for change. I hope that you'll take some time and share this with someone if you found it at all impactful. And I hope that you'll purchase the book, Think Unbroken, not only to support me and the effort of this journey, but also to help me create more tools for people who need them. Because ultimately, I can't build this on my own. If I were a millionaire like you know, Bruce Wayne, I wouldn't ask you for a penny. I would just give you this. But I know that in order for us to create change, we must invest in ourselves. So check out thinkunbroken.com paperback where you can order the book on paperback or Amazon, where you can have it on Kindle. Guys, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for spending some time with me and listening to this. It means the world to me. Please like and subscribe and comment if you're on YouTube. If you're listening to this to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, please rate and comment and follow. If you are on Instagram, check me out at Michael Unbroken. And again, you can check out the book at thinkunbroken.com paperback. And until next time, my friends be unbroken. See ya. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more.